the reason we are is to commemorate the 46th birthday of Troy right there. This is Troy's 46th birthday right there. Uh, well, we weren't going to do Genesis 46, but in honor of Troy, we're going to do 46. <laughs> Pam, you're in enough trouble with the cooking thing. <clears throat> Great to see everybody. Great to see almost everybody. Let's put it that way. Genesis 46. Are you there? Uh, Look what it says. So Israel, who is that a reference to? Yeah, that's Jacob. A little tricky. Sometimes he's Israel, sometimes he's Jacob. You can have a big discussion about that. Uh, At this point, the terms become interchangeable. Even though he's referred to as Israel as an individual, uh, he's, he's... the forebear, he's, he's going, his people are going to be Israel collectively. So to get us ready for that, sometimes he's called Israel, sometimes Jacob. Anyway, it says he set out with all that he had. Set out from where? Well, he's in a place called the land of Canaan. Specifically, he's in a place called Hebron or Hebron. It's about 30 miles north of where he's going to end up. And uh, it's a famous place, biblically, and even today, uh, a number of the patriarchs and their wives are buried there in Hebron. So he sets out with all that he had, and folks, this is not an easy thing. He's 130 years old. I realize people lived older in those days, but still, even in Jacob's day, 130 is 130. Not easy for anyone to make change, but... Uh, For an older person, it's even more difficult. He's not doing this uh, because he has a choice. He's relocating because he's hungry, and he can't feed his family anymore. There's famine. It started in Egypt, but it's so bad, it just spread to other places, including Canaan, Canaan, which is now modern-day Israel. So he's obligated to uproot and move south to Egypt. Why Egypt? Well, his son Joseph is there, and Joseph through circumstances that are remarkable, got to occupy the position, uh, second most powerful position in all of Egypt. And Joseph said to Jacob and his family, come to Egypt, I have food here, I'll take care of you. So on the one hand, Jacob does not want to relocate at this time in his life. On the other hand, he's really, as you can imagine, anxious to see his son. Why? Folks, for 22 years... Jacob thought his son was dead. 22 years. He labored under the misconception that his son was deceased. And then he found out, no, indeed he's alive and thriving in Egypt, and he's excited to be reunited with his son. We mentioned one time that you can see a lot about the Lord Jesus in what we're reading about Joseph. They're not the same, but one sort of typifies the other. Joseph has certain characteristics that are uh, foreshadowing uh, of the Lord. So uh, it's a very sad thing today, don't you think, when folks labor under the misconception that the son, uh, Jesus, died, was buried, end of story, that's it. And so many people are living as if Jesus is just a footnote in history. Yeah, he's a historical person and claimed to be the Savior. A lot of people didn't like that claim. They beat him up. They killed him. They put him in a grave, you know, and that's it. 
And then one day, oh my goodness, can you imagine finding out that he's risen from the dead? It changed your life one way or the other. And so the dad finds out, Jacob, that his son is still alive. And he's looking forward to this marvelous reunion. So he sets out from Hebron. It says he came to Beersheba. So that's an interesting place. Um, It's the southernmost town in ancient Israel. Once you leave Beersheba, you're out of Israel in that day, in this day too, largely. When you leave Beersheba, you're leaving the place of promise, and you're going into a foreign land, Egypt. As a result, uh, Jacob wisely stops off here, and he says, offered sacrifices to the God of his father, uh, Isaac. Um, Jacob knows he has to go to Egypt, but he really wants to be sure God's hand is in it. This is a significant life decision. It has ramifications. He remembers when his grandfather, Abraham, went down to Egypt, didn't work out. Remember, people were attracted to his wife. He tells his wife, why don't you just help me out here a little bit? Tell them you're my sister. Remember all that crazy stuff? On another occasion, there's famine in the land again, and Isaac, Jacob's father, wants to go down to Egypt for food, and God said, stay put. Remember that one? So now Jacob is a little sheepish here, for crying out loud. Didn't work out for granddad. God said no to dad. Uh, I better camp out here a little bit at Beersheba and consult the Lord. Folks, that doesn't sound like Jacob at all. You kidding me? This guy, he's a if-it-feels-good-do-it guy. This is not a guy to be confused by the facts. He's not waiting on anybody's counsel. He got himself into big trouble doing his own thing. But it is the same Jacob. He's just different. This really encourages me. He changed. We change. God is in the transformation business. You know, he didn't redeem us so that we'd remain the way we are. He redeemed us to be conformed to the image of his son. It's happening over years, ups and downs and all the rest. With Jacob, it happens the same way with us. This kind of encourages me. Now this guy is waiting on God in Beersheba. It means well of God. The seven. Some here have been there. Did we go there to Beersheba? I don't remember. We didn't go there. Did we go? Folks, we, we didn't go? Okay, so forget everything I said. It doesn't really exist. It's, a, it's not a place. Okay, so um, when people pay the full amount for the tours, we go to Beersheba. So it's an actual place. Have you heard the biblical expression from Dan to Beersheba? You see that later in the Bible? Dan was the northernmost part of ancient Israel. Beersheba, the southernmost part. So he, he's there. It's called Well of the Seven because Abraham made a deal with a guy, uh, a big shot in the land, uh, the, uh, about well water and being stopped up and Uh, Abraham made a deal with him, and they sealed it with the sacrifice of seven lambs. Seven, uh, Sheva, Be'er Sheva, well of the seven. So that's kind of what's what's going on over here. And the other thing, the other reason it seems to me why Jacob paused for a while. He knows his destiny and that of his people is not in Egypt. It's in the land of Canaan. Canaan is the place of promise, not Egypt. But he's going to find out that Egypt is also part of his destiny as well. Egypt 
is oftentimes used as a metaphor for the world outside of the promised land. Now, that's not true of present day. I'm not denigrating present day Egypt or Egyptian people. But in the Bible, it's sort of a, an analogy. When you're in Canaan, you're in the place of promise, and, and Egypt represents worldliness, the world. So based on that, um, you and I are in Egypt. <laughs> we are not in our place of promise. I don't know if you knew that. I mean, it's great to be in Texas, but this is not the Holy Land. I didn't, especially like Austin. That is not, you know what I'm saying. Okay, so, uh, wow. Uh, so, so our place of promise is not a piece of real estate, uh, Canaan. It's heaven. It's heaven. That's our destiny. And therefore, until we get, the, we, we are aliens and strangers passing through, sojourners. The New Testament actually refers to us that way. And as a result, we don't feel all that comfortable here. We appreciate our time here, but we feel um, that it's foreign to us. It's becoming increasingly foreign to us. The mindset, value system, ways of the world uh, don't correspond with our values much anymore. And so you wonder, God, what's up? Well, uh, though the promised land, heaven, is part of our destiny, so too is where we are right now. God has a plan for us here as much as he had a plan for Israel, even while they went down to Egypt. And there will come a time when our, our time here is over. God's purpose for us here will have been fulfilled. And then our ultimate destiny will uh, commence in heaven. So that's just, that's just part of it. So, so, so that's why he pauses, because he's wondering, God, I'm leaving the land of promise. I'm going out into the world. And so he needs some assurance. And so in verse 2, God spoke to Israel, to Jacob, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Although I think God has a deeper voice, I would think, than mine. And so he, he, he said, Yaakov, Yaakov, Hebrew, you know, because God speaks only Hebrew. Did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> I should tell you that. Yaakov, listen, when God calls out somebody's name, not once, but twice, that really means listen up. That means turn off your TV, take off your headphones, get away from your computer. I got something to tell you. And Jacob says, here I am. Here am I. Three words in English. It's only one in Hebrew. The word is hineni, hineni. You see the word throughout the Bible. When God is calling for someone to give them guidance, they respond oftentimes, Hineni, here I am. Now, folks, you and I want to be Hineni type people. I'm telling you, we always want to be within earshot and attuned to God's call. We don't want to drift. It's possible as Christians to drift, to become distracted, um, to cease hanging out with God to such an extent that we grow dull so that even when he wants to guide us, use us, direct us, and he calls us by name, we're confused, we're distracted, we're bewildered, we're insensitive to his call. We want to be in any, as soon as God calls, we want to be able to say, here I am, here I am, I'm ready to go. I'm not apart from you, there's nothing between you and I, nothing separates, we have close communion, 
I speak to you regularly. You speak back to me in your word. Hineni, Lord, Hineni. So at this point, Jacob is not on the run, not playing games, not engaged in manipulation and deception. He's a Hineni person. And so God says this in verse 3. I am God. Boy, we can move on from that, but we shouldn't too quickly. I am God. Jacob's in the midst of a situation that's overwhelming, scary. And God says, yeah, but I am God. And Jacob says, yeah, but, you know, Egypt, Egyptians, yeah, but I am God. Yeah, but I ha- I'm forced out of the land, the place of promise, the familiar territory, and I have to go to this farm. Yeah, I am God. It's an affirmation, reaffirmation, of the presence of God in the now for us. It doesn't say, I was God. Jacob, be encouraged. I used to be God. Uh, Jacob, chin up. I one day will be God to you. No, no, no. Jacob, I am, verb of being, I am God. Jacob, I matched up to whatever your now situation is, means I can handle it. You can't, you're overwhelmed, but no situation trumps me. Jacob, you're looking to the situation too much. You're looking to your circumstances. I realize it's a reality, but don't miss the ultimate reality. I am God. I'm God in the now. Not only that, second thing God says to him, I'm the God of your father. Remember how I dealt with your dad, Isaac? Remember I took, how I took care of him? Remember how I was faithful, trustworthy, reliable with your dad? Jacob, I'm not only the God in the present. I, I was the same reliable God in the past with your dad. Jacob, remember the past. Remember my tracker record. You can check up on me, Jacob. How'd I do in the past with others who put their trust in me? Did I let them down, Jacob? I'm the God of the past. I'm the God of the present is what God is saying here. And then he says, do not be afraid. Now, I want to ask you a question. Why does God say that? I'll tell you the answer. God says, do not be afraid because Jacob is afraid. Isn't that a brilliant insight, Pete? I studied hours for this one. Yeah, so here's the deal. That encourages me. That tells me as hot as Jacob was, and he was, one of the patriarchs and all that, he's just a guy like me with emotions that sometimes go crazy. He's just a guy given to fears and anxieties and trepidation and hesitation and all the rest, just like me, just like you. I mean, God wouldn't tell him, do not be afraid, unless he was afraid. So God says, do not be afraid. By the way, that is the most oft-repeated commandment in the entire Bible. God is always telling his people, do not be afraid, do not fear, which tells me, I suppose we're always afraid of something. We're always anticipating some outcome, some catastrophe, some something. We're forgetting, I am God. I'm the God of your father. So God says, do not be afraid. Now, the actual verb tense here, you have to kind of trust me on this, uh, actually means stop an activity you have already begun. (laughs) He's saying, Jacob, I know you're already apprehensive and fearful. I'm just telling you, stop it. 
don't let it go on. Stop. Remember, I'm the God of your now. I'm the God of your past. Please, Jacob, you're already into this anxiety, fear thing. Okay, I got you. Still love you, but stop it. Don't let this thing go unchecked. Put a check on it by remembering who I am. I am God. So that's what he says. Then he says to him, uh, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. Oh, man. You talk about a reaffirmation. God gave that promise to Jacob's granddad. He gave that promise to Jacob's dad. Now he's reaffirming it to Jacob. Jacob, Egypt is going down. You're going down to get there. You're leaving the place of promise. You're going into a foreign land. But Jacob, I can make you a great nation even in Egypt. And so then God says in verse 4, I will go down with you to Egypt. And I had to pause and remember that God promises to be with his people, you and I, even in a foreign land. (laughs) He's not a localized God. Uh, He is an omnipresent God. He's with us wherever we go. And then he says, I will surely bring you up again. God says that to Jacob. We're going to Egypt, but I will bring you back. I'll bring you up. So uh, tell me how that really worked out. See, 17 years from now, Jacob died. He died in Egypt. So what does this mean when God promises him, I will bring you up? Again, I mean, he died in Egypt. So in what sense has this been fulfilled? What's up with that? Yeah, Anyone have any thoughts on that one? I do. I'll tell you sometime. Yeah, Brother Charles. This is very true. His bones were brought back. He died in Egypt. He said, don't leave my bones here. Carry my bones back up. Why? It was a sign of his faith. That that was the place of promise and resurrection and uh, covenant fulfillment and all the rest. So that is definitely one explanation. And here's another one. Uh, Jacob is now interchangeably being called Jacob or Israel because he is um, represent. He's going to be the representative of Israel, the collective. So as his forebears uh, finish their time of slavery in Egypt after 400 some odd years and are going to go back uh, to the land, in a sense, he goes with them because he's still connected uh, to them as part of the covenant community. So that's, those are some possibilities. Then it says this, and Joseph will close your eyes. I can't tell you what impact that must have had on, uh, on Jacob. When you're about to depart from this world, God is essentially saying to Jacob, when, you, when you're about to take your last breath, the one who will be there to ease your transition to the next place is going to be none other than your son who you thought was dead but is very much alive. Folks, That is a foreshadowing of what the ultimate son will do for each who belong to him. When we are about ready to take our last breath, 
it is the son himself who, figuratively speaking, will close our eyes. The one who many, even we at one time, thought simply to be dead is not dead. He's very much alive. And he is the one who will ease our transition into the next phase of life, during which time, with him as an escort, we'll be with him in a face-to-face relationship forevermore. What a word of comfort for him. How about us? You know what's good? The way Christians live differently, what's just as good is the way Christians die differently. It's just different. Generally, there are exceptions. But generally, Christians just die differently. Most Christians don't die in fear, in confusion, in disarray, in dismay. In fact, oftentimes you hear at the bedside of a Christian about to go home, you hear, I can't wait. I am so ready. I pray regularly, oh, God, please don't let me linger here much longer. I am ready. I am so looking forward to seeing my Savior face to face. I'm going to be reunited with loved ones who in faith died before me. You hear, you hear these things. In fact, Probably every Christian in this room, regardless of age, longs to go home. And when it comes, we don't say, what a terrible and unfortunate turn of affairs. We say, finally, promotion. I'm ready. You see what I mean? So that's what's happening here. When you realize the son, oh, he he was murdered. He was buried. But don't labor under the misconception that that ends the story. Oh, no, the empty tomb is the final chapter in the story, not the cross. When you realize that the son is alive and that your passing, whenever it is, is taken so seriously to him, And that he will ease our passage from this life to the one that really matters. Then you say, oh, my goodness. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. So uh, Jacob was comforted. Then it says in verse 5, he arose from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and little ones and wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan. They came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons, grandsons with him, daughters, granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. And now something happens in verses 8 to 24, 25. Um, You get a long list of names that nobody can pronounce. And... uh, And you sit there and you read and you say, God, I don't mean any disrespect. I know this is your word and there's profit in it, but I don't get it. It's just like a long list of names. Why is it in there? So I wrestled with it myself in studying this and uh, I realized I don't really value it 
But the people who received it really did. Moses wrote it, and Moses put the names of all of these people listed down. He wrote them down. If you are one of the people whose name is listed here, and you're reading the list, and you see your name, it means a lot to you. It means, wow, God knows me by name. God has included me in this unique community of covenant people. We're going to Egypt. It's foreign and a little scary, but God knows I'm going along with the others. He knows everything about me, and apparently I made the cut. (laughs) I'm one of the, soon we'll see, 70. I'm one of the 70. And those people would realize I've been distinguished from the crowd. I've been trying to fit in the crowd, but God has separated me from the crowd and given me the privilege of being part of this community of covenant uh, who he has a plan for. And then they would realize as they read it, wow, I really ought to act like who I am. I ought to stop acting like I didn't make the cut. (laughs) I ought to start acting like God has his eyes on me, knows my name, is bringing me down, only to bring me up. Folks, do you know if you're a Christian, your name is inscribed in something called the Lamb's Book of Life? Think about it. You've been separated by faith through his grace. You've been separated from the crowd. You made the cut. Your name is in the Lamb's book, and it may not have a lot of meaning to everyone, but as you're looking at it, the book is open, and you're, you're looking for your name. You see your name spelled correctly in everything? <laughs> you go, oh, man, it don't, it's not just going to be a bunch of names. I mean, wow, you're so excited. You're going to realize since you have the son, you have eternal life. And you and I ought to live today in full uh, knowledge and conviction that our name is in the Lamb's book of life. And just as these people were meant to consider themselves different, so too are we. We're supposed to live here as if we are set apart ones. We're to be holy as he is holy. Perfect? No, we We're not perfect. Holy means separated for God's glory. Our feverish quest to fit in is misdirected. God is trying to pull us out. We're trying to fit back into Egypt. No, 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 no. He's trying to make sure we're a community of faith, covenant people who understand their calling and inclusion in the family of God. So this genealogy, man, it meant a lot. Not to me. But it surely did to them. That's why it's in there, I think. So here's how it's constructed. Verses 8 and on. Um, it's, it's done in the order of Jacob's women. He had like four at least. Wives, concubines, I don't know. I get all confused. So first, you see the sons of his first partner, then second partner, third and fourth partners. That's how this 
genealogy is constructed. It looks to us like there's not much order to it, but there's actually a lot. So it starts with the children, the sons, born to Jacob through Leah. Leah. And so um, it says in verse 8, these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. So that's one of the sons uh, born to Jacob through Leah. So what you have in verses 8 to 15 are the 33 descendants of Leah, 33 in the list. And then what you have in verses 16 to 18 are the 16 descendants of Zilpah, another one of his partners. And then what you have in verses 19 to 22 are the 14 descendants of Rachel. And then what you have finally in verses 23 to 25 are the seven descendants of Bilhah. And if you do the math, you can find out how many of Jacob's people are uh, going down to Egypt. In fact, if you don't want to do the math, you can skip with me to verse 26. Look at your Bible, verse 26. How many people does it say went down with him? 66 people. But now read the next verse in your Bible, verse 27. How many does it say in verse 27? 70. So we have a discrepancy of four, right? No, we don't. Uh, The number 66 does not include Jacob himself, Joseph in Egypt already, and Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. When you add those four to the 66, you get 70. What's so important about 70? I don't really know, but I know there's something to it. I'm not uh, uh, really big on biblical numerology, the significance of numbers in the Bible. It's an important thing. I'm just not very, very much up on it. But I, knew, I know 70 is an important number, kind of the number of completion. It's as if God is saying, I'm starting just with you folks, but it's, it's all I need to construct the nation I'm going to construct in 400 plus years and then bring them back to the promised land. Now, I got to tell you this in case your faith is being shaken. In Acts chapter 7, a person named Stephen is defending the faith. Stephen was martyred for the faith. There's a place in Jerusalem, which, which is actually the location where his death ensued. He's defending his faith in Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 14, Stephen said, Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. Whoops. Genesis says 70. Acts 7, verse 14 says 75. So what are we going to do about it? Uh, I, for one, am giving up my allegiance to the Lord Jesus. I'm just looking for a better deal. You know, that five is just really shaking my faith. That's it. No, we're not doing anything like that. Uh, Here's an explanation. When the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, was translated first into Greek, that's called the Septuagint. And the translators of the Septuagint used the number 75, which carried over into the New Testament, Greek New Testament. Where'd they get 75? They added five grandsons of Jacob who were not yet born when the Genesis 46 account was written. 
So there you have it. Therefore, I'm going to continue to be a Christian. <laughs> so verse 28, here's what Jacob does. He sends one of his sons, Judah, before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. So that's where the Hebrews are going to live, a place called Goshen. Now, this is interesting. This won't in any way change your life, but you may find it interesting. Um, Upper Egypt is in the south. <laughs> Lower Egypt is in the north. You would think the other way, right? Upper is up, and, you know, but that's not how it works. Because the Nile River flows from the south to the north and empties into the Mediterranean Sea. So uh, there's more elevation in the south of Egypt than in the north. So they call the south Upper Egypt and the north Lower Egypt. There you go. Thanks. I'm getting myself confused. So Goshen is in, the, uh, lower, is in Lower Egypt. It was a delta. And because it's, the Nile is flowing into it, you got all this water. It was a very fertile place. So, so they know they're going to Goshen. And so verse 29, Joseph prepared his chariot. I mean, he's got all kinds of servants, messengers he could send. Ah, oh, but no, this is his family. This is his dad. He wants to get in on it firsthand. So he prepared his chariot, went up to Goshen to meet his father, Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. There were no words sufficient for the situation. The father who thought his son was dead for 22 years, the son who hadn't seen his father for 22 years, who was thought of as being dead, they finally come upon one another. What do you say? Good to see you, Dad. Good to see you, son. You put on weight. I mean, what, what do you say? They just hug. That's what it is. They're just weeping. The, the second in command of the mightiest nation, empire on earth, Egypt, is just uncontrollably weeping. What a moment that reunion between father and son was. What a moment it must have been when father and crucified, resurrected, ascended son were reunited. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine the joy and rejoicing when God the father and God the son were reunited? So anyway, this happens. And then verse 30, then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die. Since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. He didn't have a death wish. He lived for 17 more years. What he's saying is, I'm so satisfied seeing the sun alive. I could go now and die as a satisfied man. Wouldn't it be great for us to be able to say the same thing? I am so satisfied to have by faith beheld the risen Son of God. I could die now a satisfied person. He's not dead to me. I lived life thinking he was irrelevant. Oh, no. He's alive. I know him. I could, based on that alone, die a satisfied person and go to be in his presence forever. Then verse 31, Joseph said, to his brothers and to his father's household, I I'll go up and tell Pharaoh 
And I'll say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. Now, this is interesting to me. (laughs) Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, was he not? Remember, they were jealous of his dreams and stuff. They throw him in a pit. They don't know what to do with him. Instead of killing him, which was a live option, they said, uh, we can sell him. Well, lo and behold, good fortune. A caravan is passing by. They sell their brother as a slave. That's how he ends up in Egypt to begin with. They take his tunic, put blood on it, and they uh, fabricate this lie, which they present to their father. Bad news. Uh, Joseph, your son, is dead. He was killed by wild animals. And so they impose this horrific, tragic loss on their father who labors under the misconception that it's true for 22 years. You see, 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 see what I mean? And all that is being done to Joseph, and yet Joseph steps up as the mediator of his brothers and the rest of his family before Pharaoh right now. You talk about grace. You talk about mercy. And don't you see, this foreshadows the ultimate son. We betrayed him. We denied him. We rebelled against him. We extracted him from the formula of life. We have done our own thing. And he says, I will suffer and die on the cross for them. And when I rise up from death, I will intercede between them and you, Father. Not Pharaoh, but the king, the, the ultimate source of authority, God the Father. It's all of grace, all of grace. And so he says, verse 32, the men are shepherds. This is what he's going to tell Pharaoh. They've been keepers of livestock. They've brought their flocks and herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what's your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock. He's not telling him to lie. You know what he's telling him? Tell the truth. Tell Pharaoh who you are. Don't mask your identity. Don't deny who you are. Tell them this. We've been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers. Do this, Joseph says, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. So what's going on there? Joseph missed it here. Look at here. Joseph is powerful. He could tell his brothers, look, uh, let's not make waves. Um, Don't tell them you mess with animals, shepherds and stuff. Egyptians don't like it. Tell them uh, you sell insurance. That's what you do. You sell insurance. And then, you know, you can be integrated and live with them, good neighborhoods, get good jobs. You'll have, like, big positions in the Egyptian government. But Joseph doesn't do that. He says, "I, I want you to confess who you are. I I want you to simply report when you get an opportunity, the truth. I want you to tell Pharaoh your identity, even though doing so may have ramifications for you. But telling the truth and being who you are, even though you may be segregated, separated, live in Goshen, apart from the mainstream of Egypt, even though that's kind of a load, better to simply tell people who you are, what you stand for, than deny it. 
for the sake of some temporary earthly gain. Why did Joseph do that? Well, Egypt in the day was the most racist society on earth. The Egyptians thought they were direct descendants of the gods, but nobody else was. So the Hebrews certainly weren't. On top of it, they messed with animals. Now, God in Genesis wants man to have dominion over cows. But cows in that day in Egypt had dominion over man. The Egyptians would worship cows. You see what I mean? And so the, uh, these Hebrews, you know, are messing around with them, smelly animals. The Egyptians had no respect for nomadic peoples. They couldn't be trusted. They moved from place to place. So, so you say, no, God, what is up with this? Of all places to move the chosen people, how about like Hawaii or something? You know, what is up with this? Why Egypt where all this stuff is going on? Did you not know what kind of culture it is? Oh, yeah. Listen what happened in Canaan. Israel was on the verge of getting swallowed up by intermarriage with the Canaanites and taking on their gods. Can you look back at verse 10 just for a second? Verse 10 in, this, in the genealogy. I'd like you to see something. Verse 10. The sons of Simeon, here they are, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jachin and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Whoa. So here's the trick. When you're reading genealogies in the Bible, uh, you should pay real close attention when the pattern is broken. It's a literary device God uses to get your attention. And you're going along and things are operating according to a pattern. And all of a sudden you read this, Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. It does not say that with reference to anyone else. Why does it say it here? It seems so odd. That's the point. Marry, if you're an Israelite, marrying a Canaanite was meant to be odd, unusual, and exception. Not the rule. If everybody did this, the covenant people would have been swallowed up by the Canaanites. They would have taken on their customs, their culture, and their worship of false gods. So God uses a famine to give these people a chance to remain a pure and undefiled um, covenant people so he moves them out of Canaan into Egypt but the same thing could happen to him in Egypt the Israelites were not good folk they could take on the multiplicity of Egyptian false gods too and so God says I'll use racism to keep you from being accepted (laughs) to keep you from being integrated in the mainstream of society and all you have to do is tell them who you are (laughs) and the rest will be taken care of. Now, some of the people who you speak to are going to be attracted to you, and when I lead you out of this place, they're going to come with you. But others are not going to like you. They're not going to want anything to do with you, and so therefore you're going to be living in the ghetto called Goshen. You're going to the ghetto. Now, you're going to see it, this kind of, Uh, separation to be a bad thing but I'm doing to protect you from spiritual compromise and corruption and folks all you have to do today is tell someone who you are I'm a follower of the Lord who is Jesus the Messiah I have 
sinned because I am a sinner. That's who I am. And I have sought and obtained forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died for my sin. That's who I am. I am someone who believes the things the Bible says to believe. I believe that marriage consists of an irreversible bond between a man and a woman. I believe in the sanctity of life and that abortion is very displeasing to God. On and on and on. In other words, when you tell people who you are, it's going to have two effects, both of which are good, but one of which is pleasurable. One effect, people are going to follow you out of Egypt into the place of promise. That's a good thing. Now, the other thing is people are going to be disgusted with you, want nothing to do with you. That hurts, but is a good thing because God doesn't want us to cave into the temptation to fit in. It's a human temptation. And God said, I called you out. Why are you struggling to fit in? I'll help you. Nobody wants to mess with shepherds. You see? So uh, Johns Hopkins University, one of the best in the country, student body, just voted to boycott Chick-fil-A. Mary was talking about Chick-fil-A earlier. Like these students have nothing better to do. Do you know what's happening on our university campuses is unstinking believable? Unstinking believable. So they boy, why? Because Chick fil A has taken a stand on certain moral and ethical issues that happen to be consistent with the Bible. Let's boycott them. Charles Stanley, you know, Charles Stanley was just a great pastor, preacher, all the rest. Uh, he was uh, up for an award to be presented to him by a Jewish organization. They want to give awards. To, I don't know, who knows what. But then some of the members of this organization say, no, we don't want to give it to him because he does not show support for the LBGT whatever community, the, the lesbian, bisexual, gay, transgender Short, overweight, <laughs> balding, left-handed. I mean, let's all get in there for crying out loud. So they say Charles Stanley has not shown support, therefore we're not giving him the award, to which Charles Stanley says, okay, <laughs> take my name off the list. Now, Charles Stanley doesn't denigrate anyone. He's not burning down any buildings or anything like that. He is simply telling people who he is. I'm someone who believes God got it right about sexuality, and we done got it wrong. That's all he's doing. He's not laying his trip on anybody else. But the mere fact that he's telling people who he is is enough to get him on the hit list. Well, that's not a good thing. That's a perhaps a hurtful thing, but it is a good thing. Folks, we have got to realize we're different. Our names are on the list. We're in the Lamb's book of life. Therefore, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's what the Lord says. It does not say, therefore, you shall be happy. Therefore, you shall fit in. Therefore, you shall be popular. Therefore, you shall be understood and respected. 
Why should it be different for the servant than it was for the master? Jesus says, they hated me, they'll hate you. Therefore, we should not be so shaken by what's happening today. We are fast uh, approaching the day, it seems to me, when we may be experiencing the same response of society to us that the first century church did. It's really happening. Why? Well, for one thing, in not fitting in, it gives us the opportunity of valuing our relationships with one another. I mean, I made the cut. My name's on the list, but so too is yours. Yeah, but wait a second. You're the person who raises both of your hands in worship. And I don't. You know, and up until now, we have had the luxury of having different churches, the hand-raising church and the hand-sitting-on-your-hands church or whatever. <laughs> the deal. You see, we have felt the luxury to part ways over dumb stuff. I mean, dumb stuff. Now we're saying, oh, my goodness, there's light, there's darkness. The darkness could not stand the light because their deeds are evil. But I'm in the light by God's grace. Jesus is the light of the world. I've been enlightened by him, and so have you. I don't really care what you do with your hands. Just don't do it to me. You see what I mean? It is enhancing, enhancing our, our sense of family uh, uh, connection. We're in Egypt, and we're all going Christians of any persuasion who know the Lord Jesus. We're all going to our place of, of uh, promise. And so here's the deal. One approach to what's going on in the world is isolation. That's what we'll do. I got it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's pool our money because, we, you know, we don't like debt. Uh, you know, pastor teaches us about this. Let's pool our resources and buy like a big tract of land in Alvin. We'll go to Alvin. We'll buy a big, just lots of land. We'll be near the edges. And, so, and, and we'll buy a big track. And then we'll build a, like a big wall with uh, guard posts and like lots of guns, you know. And that's easy in Alvin. Everyone, you know what I'm saying. So, uh, and so, uh, and it'll be the place only for Christians. And so we'll keep out those other people. <laughs> We'll keep them out. It'll just be us. And we will become self-sufficient so we never have to go to like Kroger or H-E-B. You know, we don't have to get cooties because it'll just be us. And what we'll do is, well, basically nothing. We'll just wait here until the Lord returns. And he will be ever so pleased to see us in our gated community, isolated from the corrupting influences. Never. Some, some people choose that. That is not biblical. You know, go therefore. Those two words will mess you up if you're, if you're an isolationist. Go. So, so, so God doesn't want us to isolate. He wants us to insulate. Big difference. In other words, he wants us to be in the world, but not. That's the deal. Because some of the Egyptians are going to follow us into the promised land. That actually happened. Others are not. And we want to avoid their corrupting influence, but others are going to follow us. That's our purpose. That's our destiny here until God brings us home. So all that's happening. I didn't say it's good, but none of it has taken the Lord by surprise, and he can use all of it for his good, for our good and his glory. And because he bought us, he owns us. He will be glorified through us. And even if we don't have what it takes to insulate ourselves from the corrupting influences of the world, the Father says, 
I'll make sure you are. You're not going to be popular. Your good old uh, Christianized America, it's not happening. It's not, it's not happening anymore. You, you might feel a terrible loss and all the rest, but I'm telling you, you can't separate yourself. I'll make you a tad bit repulsive to those, <laughs> to those around you. Everything in your Egypt will be tolerated except you. <laughs> and that will force you to go to church, to pray, to encourage and support one another, to thank God for putting your name in the Lamb's book of life. You made the cut. Why God? Why me and not somebody else? And he says, who said not somebody else? Live the separated life in front of that person and that person may follow you out of Egypt and into the place of promise, you see. So Genesis 46 is not just for Troy's birthday. It's in there because it's instructive for us down to this very day. Hence, the weaving of Old Testament and New Testament. There's stuff for us to learn. As God was in the Old Testament, so he is today. We are Jacob. We are just like him. And Joseph is a foreshadowing of the ultimate son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we bow before you, Lord Jesus, because you are the ultimate son of God. You possess in fullness the essence of divinity and you took on the essence of humanity, but for sin. Thank you for coming to serve as a bridge builder and mediator between us and the Father, even though we betrayed you. Thank you for grace greater than all our sin. Thank you for telling us in advance that it is your plan to bring us forth holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. We cannot get there ourselves. Thank you, O oh God, for protecting us by not letting us fit in, be acceptable, and fully received by all those around us. But Lord, help us not to want that so much that we deny who we are. We are Christians, Christ ones, followers of the anointed one, followers of Jesus the Messiah. Oh God, whatever that may cost us is worth it for the sake of knowing you. In fact, we're so satisfied in knowing you as risen Savior that we could pass on right now and be fully satisfied. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for truth expressed in seed form in the Old Testament brought to fulfillment in the new. We're grateful for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Lord willing, we'll be in Genesis 47. I should tell you I got a nasty gram from Brother Chuck. I should close with this. He said, Stuart, maybe we should try to finish the New Testament before the rapture. And then he said, and then after the rapture, you can finish the Old Testament. That's what he said. Ha <laughs> ha.